You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, welcome back, everybody. Good to see you again. Good to be back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so funny... Uh, Kirk, the topic you were talking about at Me? the end of last week's episode, because mm-hmm. oh yeah, what I had teed up already for this week, kind of kind of pulls off of that. And in fact, for our patrons, if you listened to the bonus material for that show, really does an extremely nice segue into what I'm talking oh about this gosh. week, because okay. I am talking about dinosaurs. Uh-huh. Oh, um, we talked about that with the patrons. Y- yep. Yeah. So. You know, I supr- I don't think about dinosaurs as much as you might think because I, I although I have twins who recently turned five, they're <laughs> like, not mm-hmm. that into dinosaurs, which is I feel like kind of unusual Shocking. for preschoolers. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Give them a little bit, but they, you know, they've definitely absorbed some information because like that is the sea that preschoolers swim in. I think dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you know they get dinosaur themed gifts occasionally on gift giving occasions, such as Christmas mm-hmm. that happened fairly recently. And I was looking mm. at some of the stuff they'd been given and it got me to thinking, why do the dinosaurs on the stuff you buy still look basically the same oh. as the dinosaurs from the oh, stuff right. when I was a kid? Yep. Which we because know is wrong. Yeah. We know it's wrong. We in all the, know it's in wrong. In the last 40 years, the amount we have learned about how dinosaurs actually looked is huge. Compared they have to feathers what now. Done. Right. They, have I mean, they always had feathers, like, but we know that they had feathers. They're not selling the products to the kids or selling it to the adults. And if it looked weird, the adults would be like, that doesn't yeah. look right. I mean, well, the adults are wrong. you can definitely buy some books and stuff that have more accurate dinosaur depictions, like with feathers and so forth. But, uh, you know, a lot of the more basic preschool level stuff, no, mm-hmm. it just looks the same. And, it's, you know, why has so little of the scientific consensus made it into popular dinosaur themed materials? I think we can really lay a lot of the blame at the feet of Steven Spielberg and the Jurassic yeah. Park franchise. Yeah, yeah. probably. They, they, they did update some stuff in the movies, but yeah. not like yeah. enough. There were some feathers, no, but there could be enough, more yeah. feathers. Right. So... Yeah, I guess I have not seen the most recent Jurassic Park movie, uh, Jurassic World Dominion, which came out in 2022, but apparently there was a feathered dinosaur in it. Like, okay, yeah. good, good. Right. You know, um, and to give Spielberg some credit, in 1993, when the first Jurassic Park movie came out, mm-hmm. well, it had kind of been discussed in the paleontological world about dinosaurs perhaps having feathers. It wasn't confirmed or settled mm-hmm. science sure. at that point um yep. right and, and that movie actually first... led us to like learn more about dinosaurs didn't it because they used paleontology or real paleontologists uh, hmm. to consult right I, I i i think they did yeah but yeah. you know 
Hollywood license too. Right. Uh, <laughs> For sure. The first um, confirmed feathered dinosaur fossil was described in 2001. So first. Okay, cool. Yeah. 90, 1993 to 2001. So yeah. Yes. Dinosaurs had feathers. A lot of dinosaurs had feathers. Uh, mm-hmm. feathers started out as a kind of, I think, as you mentioned, Kirk, uh, maybe it was in the Patreon um, bonus, but feathers started out as it was, yeah. more single filament kind of hair-like structures that were for warmth and then gradually okay. evolved into the kind of feathers we see today with shafts and veins that can be used for flight. Okay. Uh, yeah, they're just modified scales is all they really yeah. are. I, I do have sense. to say this, but I'm going to interrupt you just for a, li- a hot second, Victoria. Sure. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. Is the closest in 155 episodes that we've gotten to overlapping <laughs> or having the same topic. That's yeah. wild to me. I just had to point that out. Please continue telling me about dinosaurs and feathers. Okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, it, it makes sense that dinosaurs have feathers because paleontologists now agree that the birds of today are dinosaurs. They're the yeah, descendants they're of theropod dinosaurs and when we're talking about non-theropod dinosaurs sometimes um scientists say non-avian dinosaurs because Mm -hmm. you know they're just talking about the ones that aren't birds (laughs) right theropods were the group that included like t-rex and velociraptor velociraptors and Mm -hmm. ones that went on two legs like that that looked you know kind of a little bird-like in some ways yeah so you know as we were discussing in the bonus episode last week, there are some dinosaurs for which we have direct fossil evidence that they were covered in feathers, um, including what color the feathers were based on their molecular structure, which is amazing. So cool. And so there have fun. even recently been discovered some dinosaur, like complete, a complete dinosaur tail covered in feathers and dinosaur wings covered in feathers from very small dinosaurs that were preserved in amber, which is incredibly cool. That is so cool. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, you know what I'm going to do, Victoria? I, this, what I talked about uh, last week for our patrons ties in so well and importantly with this almost as like some back deeper background information on Mm -hmm. some of the things you talked about. I know a lot of our listeners don't ever get to hear that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make last week's bonus free to everyone. Oh. I'm going to post it up uh, 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 and make, make the link bonus. free to everyone. Happy New Year, everybody. For uh, a bonus for everybody for the new year. If you are kind of wondering what is some of this bonus material like uh, that some of our patrons get to hear, I'm going to have everybody, you can go right now after you hear this over to patreon.com slash strangebynature, and you'll be able to hear that bonus episode or that bonus material along with all of our patrons. And then if you're like, Hey, this is uh, this is pretty cool. Uh, consider becoming a patron. So uh, mm-hmm. this is your is your freebie. Merry, Merry New Year! It's your yeah, fun so sample. Check, check that out after this. Yeah. So you know our our misconceptions about what dinosaurs looked like are not limited to feathers, though. Last year, a paper came out showing strong evidence that Tyrannosaurus rex had lips. What? So, yeah. <laughs> I missed I this. I think I saw that. What? Oh my God, yeah. It's like. So, instead lips. of having his its fearsome teeth Snarl. hanging out there in the open like a yeah. crocodile, they uh-huh. were covered similar to today's lizard. So, like, picture a uh-huh. Komodo dragon's mouth, if you know what a Komodo dragon looks like. And just like mm-hmm. the teeth right. are all covered up. 
Okay. Yeah. See, yeah. okay, that makes sense, but that isn't what I immediately <laughs> pictured when you said lips. the T Rex right. had. Well, yeah, lips. no, I pictured the big Leon, big, you know. <laughs> yeah, big smackers. <laughs> oh, wild. Which, of course, when you think about it, you kind of go, well, yeah, of course they probably did. Right. You know what I mean? It makes sense. Animals you see walk around with teeth. And I I think... uh, How many bugs would get in your mouth? There's been so many episodes. I I think this is Rachel who's brought up in the past, but maybe it was you, Victoria. The people who... There was this artist who's done the... Oh, I've absolutely talked about this. People try to recreate modern animals by only looking at their skeletons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to talk about that some more just now. Oh, oh, yeah. So if you draw them without (laughs) lips, they look just like... Oh my god, a deer looks terrifying. It's got fangs and it's like Well, I mean, oh, illustrators deer, you know? or in the in the like a couple hundred years ago when they got skeletons or whatever of these creatures or even like dead critters that were um like mummified or whatever and brought back from a very different space you've never seen a living uh critter, like they bring back <laughs> a walrus <laughs> and it Okay, Kirk. And it ju- they blow it up. And they get all the wrinkles out because they don't think wrinkles should be there, and it just becomes this right. little ball. Okay, okay, you can anyway. Stop, stop, because you're like taking up all the things I was gonna say. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Keep going, Victoria. Tell us all about it. Tell us okay. about it, Victoria. So yeah, uh, as I was gonna say, besides <laughs> specific things like feathers and lips, there's just a general misconception about how prehistoric animals looked compared mm-hmm. to modern animals. Right. And you know, as you said, like because what we know is entirely based on skeletons almost until very recently. You know, you could reconstruct an annual's, animal's musculature pretty well based only on a skeleton. Right. Mm-hmm. But real animals have all kinds of other stuff besides just the bones and the muscles. They have fat all over their bodies or like fat pads, skin folds, air sacs, dewlaps, you know, flexible stouts mm-hmm. like an elephant's trunk. None of that is stuff you can tell from the skeleton, but it's a big part of how real animals look. Uh, you know, along yeah. with the skin coverings like feathers or fur and whatever colors they contain. So, yes, I had forgotten that this book had been mentioned on the show before, but there's a very cool 2012 book called All Yesterdays, Unique mm. and Speculative Views of Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals by John Conway, C.M. Kozman, and Darren Nash. Um, okay. Nash is a paleozoologist and Conway and Kozman are paleoartists. And they collaborated to produce these speculative, but like scientifically supported images of dinosaurs. And like, first of all, they literally flesh out the pictures of the, how the dinosaurs could be more realistic to how real animals are. So with like chunky bodies and weird stuff coming out of their heads or whatever. Um, And they also show them doing things other than eating each other or fighting. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Uh, which, like you know, on a is, nest. Yeah. right. How dinosaurs are often depicted in popular media. So for example, their picture of a T-Rex is curled up sleeping and they have a little group of small beaked dinosaurs that are like climbing in a tree. And there's a chubby si- triceratops with spikes all over the skin of its back, just kind of hanging out. Fun. It's all extremely, yeah, it's all extremely cool and thought provoking. But as you mentioned, like the most thought provoking part is the section at the end of the book where the artists create images of modern animals in this kind of like shrink wrapped uh, there it is yep. dinosaur mm-hmm. style all muscle and bone oh god and they look <laughs> horrifying horrifying oh yeah absolutely like terrifying creatures. okay so there's a picture of a baboon it looks like this emaciated vampire lizard uh, <laughs> with giant fangs 
and yeah, a swan. Sense. It looks kind of like this snake-necked, snake-necked claw-wielding alien, and a zebra. It's this bug-eyed, humpbacked creature with a single claw on each foot. It's like nothing like these animals look. But you look at it, and you're like, <laughs> right. okay, yeah, okay, that's like kind of a horse skeleton, I guess. All right. <laughs> I guess, um, yeah. But you can, by, by looking at those images, you can just see how um, poor in imagination our, our stereotypical images of dinosaurs are and how far they are from what dinosaurs probably really looked like. Just imagine if the, the first people to do some of those drawings had taken a very different you know, approach to it and drawn oh, them yeah. much more fleshed out. And, and you say, well, no, of course that their, their teeth would be covered. And of course they, you know, no, there was probably webbing between these things, you know. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. you look at it and go, like, our perception of what a dinosaur is might be so radically different. You wonder if they'd even be as popular with kids, like we started your story off with, if they, mm -hmm. they didn't look like these, you know, fierce, you know, crazy creatures. You're like, oh, it looks kind of like a... Uh, oh, let's it, you know this um, uh, this thing. This looks like a, a fat whale. Like, that <laughs> you know, like maybe you'd you know, like oh maybe maybe, maybe whales was, would be know, more popular, I, Kirk. Yeah, so it's like it's it's fascinating. Like I, mean, I think whales are pretty popular, but yeah. like it's just it's interesting to know how much like just a, a handful of artists really shaped our perception of these animals. Yeah, totally. Over time, you know? Yeah, and ultimately, you know, we'll never be able to know everything about how prehistoric creatures looked. Although we're learning more every year, including Until about... Until I get my time machine working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, you know, but at least in the world of scientific illustration, what we see is starting to reflect some of the updated ideas more and more and more. Very cool. As to how long it'll be before the typical dino depiction in a preschool classroom is more accurate, I have no idea. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My main sources this week were Audubon, uh, the New York Times, and Smithsonian Magazine. Woohoo! Thanks, Victoria. Very yeah. cool. Thank you. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Kirk will have something for us. Yeah. It's birds. Oh, man. <laughs> Shocker. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Yeah, I, I said right as we went to break, it's birds. But basically, <laughs> it's dinosaurs, right? I'm talking about dinosaurs. Yeah, dinosaurs. Um, I had this image in my head uh, from when I was a kid. I remember going to Disney World and mm -hmm. getting a hot dog in mm -hmm. uh, Epcot's World Show Showcase. Mm -hmm. Looking back now, I'm not really sure which country in the World Showcase was serving hot dogs. As part of their worldly cuisine. Well, I think uh, the but, U.S. You know, is there in the world showcase. Is it? Was yeah, it a it hot dog or was it a Frankfurter? There I is mean, Germany as well. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I was just there. You so know, I was they're like, trying to... They're, they're, well, this is a long time ago. That's <laughs> when fair. I was a child. So uh, they were trying to... And they're trying to appeal to children. So I'm going to cut them some slack, even if it was like, you know, France or something. I don't know. So what I remember, though, was... Uh, going and getting a hot dog, and they were like, hey, as soon as we hand it to you, like, guard it with your life. <laughs> and, like, yeah. you got to, like, get it close to the body. Oh, oh you say, oh, yeah, Rachel. Yeah. Why? The birds. Why? Seagulls. Why the seagulls. The gulls. The gulls. They're yeah. coming for you. Okay, well, we sat there and watched as people would, like, 
get a hot dog and confidently walk away holding out in front of them like, I have my hot dog. And the gulls would fly down and just yoink this hot dog right out of the bun, <laughs> flying up. And it happened again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And it is just uh... probably one of those formative memories as a child being like, <laughs> whoa, these, these birds are pretty rad. They're pretty cool. Like this is a... Yeah entertaining and uh it, and clever and an amazing thing in the days since then i've often had the thought that gulls would eat us if they could oh like totally. they oh, are absolutely they are voracious like i mean i think a lot of birds probably would i uh, wish maybe it goes back to the dinosaur thing that uh <laughs> victoria was talking about um but i want to go back in time not as far back in time uh as uh the dinosaurs that victoria was talking about and uh, to the year 1924, now, I know I'm older than you, Rachel, but I was mm-hmm. not alive in 1924. This is not a story about my childhood. Oh, good. We're going to go somewhere far away from Orlando um, to South Africa, actually. Quarrymen uh, who are working at the uh, northern, for the Northern Lime Company uh, okay. in this town of T- uh, Tong, I believe it's pronounced, T-A-U-N-G, Tong, South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were digging in the earth when they uncovered what appeared to be the skull of a primate. Now, they knew what this was, and it was a fossil. Uh, these workers commonly found fossils in this quarry. They'd find these big chunks of fossils, uh, and it, mm. they'd get kind of, probably kind of pissed about it because it, the uh, sort of the matrix that the fossils were in was much harder than uh, this lime that they were mining. And whenever they got to one of these little fossil beds, they're like, oh, get the dynamite. And they'd have to blow it up and get this crap out of the way. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but once in a while, they found cool stuff. They'd yeah. take some cool pieces home or something. Fair. And um, they found this skull. And they're like, well, this is, this is pretty rad, right? It looks like a skull of a primate. And um, they showed it to uh, this guy, E.G. Izod. Uh, who was the visiting director of the company that like managed the quarry. And he's like, oh, this is, this is pretty cool. Like, you know, can I have this? And they're like, yeah, whatever. Like it's, it's junk. Right. So he thought it was kind of cool. He had it and he did what you do with any, you know, skull, you give it to your child. Uh, so he <laughs> gave it to his son, this guy, Pat, his Pat Izod. And he was like, I got this really cool, like fossilized skull. And he decided he wanted to display it on the mantle over his fireplace. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm thinking back now. I said his his child. Uh, it, the story I've read is that it was his son. Maybe it was his adult son. I really don't yeah. know. Yeah, uh, I mean. So he, but I do know is that it ended up being displayed on the mantle. Okay. Mm-hmm. There was a family friend who was visiting named Josephine uh, Salmons. And she recognized this thing on their mantle as being something pretty unusual and potentially important was like, um, do you mind if I take this and, and, and show it to somebody? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. That, that's cool. So she showed, showed it to her, her mentor. And both uh, she and her mentor were anatomists and were, and were very interested in this. And once, once uh, he saw it, too, was like, wow, do you, I wonder if we can get more, like if there was more than just this. So they, you know, kind of went through the chain of, of people and contacted the quarry and is like, if you find anything else like this, please let us know. And it wasn't too much later they were sent an entire crate full of skulls oh. and bones. And they're like, Whoa. oh, all right then. Okay. Let's just um, dig, dig on in and see what we can find. Well, one of them that they found in this crate was even more interesting. Um, it was clearly a juvenile primate with a flattish face, small teeth, 
And they could tell basically that there was an impression that there had been a complex brain inside it, Mm -hmm. uh, which Uh is super cool. They could tell that. So in 1925, they published a paper in Nature declaring it as a new species. And they called this species Australopithecus africanus. Uh, And this caused a huge stir. uh, And I have to... There's a term that's going to come up uh, and was popular at the time. And I got to do a little rant on this term. It's the term missing link. Uh, this mm. is uh, yeah. what <clears throat> I, yeah. I don't like this term. What they had found was a transitional fossil uh, that is thought to be a link between apes or primitive apes, like prehistoric apes and humans. And it's sort of this obsession with like the media mostly to be like, Oh, it's the missing link. Cause that's this pop culture term that is fundamentally a meaning, meaningless term. Uh, if you think about a chain, a chain is actually a really kind of cool metaphor in some ways for, you know, uh, evolution or its history You have like an animal and it had its child and its child and its child and its child and child. And you have this long chain, but, you know, if you find one of the links of that chain and you go, oh, I found the missing link. Like, are, what? There's not no, no. one special missing link. There were, yeah. There's millions of links. So there's no one that's the missing link that's going to finally show that man and ape are connected. Right. What we have found are many different transitional fossils uh, that are links in this chain. Uh, uh, the whole idea of a chain is actually a really bad metaphor. It's more like a... Um, more a like tree, chain like mail. a family tree with many well, branches. Yeah. Well, no, because what I'm thinking of is more like you can have things that were lineages that didn't go anywhere, right? Like right. It, it, it's something evolved from apes that was getting more toward like humans were. And then one whole branch just kind of dies out and doesn't become humans. So it's really a tricky thing to look at any one sort of skull and go, well, is this a direct member of that lineage as though it was a ch- unbroken chain or is this one of a group of hominids that uh, you know is part of the story of this evolution but maybe this direct lineage died out and didn't become humans right mm-hmm. so i just needed a, i just needed a rant a little bit about this term missing uh-huh. link I, I really i hate that term uh, what was you know put out there was there. that this was a um a transitional fossil between apes and humans at the time uh 1925 this caused a lot of controversy Uh, a number of people were just Uh like uh no no way that this is bogus this is not what this is some people argued this is just the skull of a gorilla Mm. that's what it is you just this is another this is a just a type of you know it's a primate clearly but to say that it was some sort of link to humans is preposterous. Mm-hmm. A lot of the objections looking back now were actually religious objections more than actual yeah. scientific re- objections. Right. Um, in more modern times, it is widely accepted that this is a legit uh, transitional uh, fossil between humans and, um, and apes. Uh, so very cool. But why am I telling you about it? Because I mean, yeah. it's cool enough as it is. Yeah. Um, this became known, this skull became known as the Tong Child, okay. uh, named after the, the place that it was found. It's a cool story. It's a strange story on its own, but it got a little weirder in 2006. Okay. And you might be wondering, why did I, why did I start this story talking about You want to talk about, well, yeah, Orlando. especially since yeah. you right? said you were going to talk about 
Birds. Birds. All right. Well, in 2006, I think paleo I heard this. anthropologist Lee Berger studied the Tong child and discovered damage to the eye sockets. Oh, now, no. he had previously done other studies, and he's like, I, I recognize this damage. He had oh. seen the exact same damage in modern primates that had been killed by eagles. And so what? his claim yeah. is that these are talon marks inside the eye sockets. And also there's a, a depression along the skull uh, that is characteristic of primates that have been preyed upon by eagles or, you know, another large similar predatory bird. Uh-huh. Which, you know, we have, we have eagles. We got like harpy, you know, eagles that pick monkeys right out of trees uh-huh. and tuck in for dinner. Um, and, you know, when we look at some of those, the types of marks those, those large eagles and stuff leave, it's the same marks that, uh, at least this, this guy, Lee Berger, was claiming to have found on this fossil. So it's very possible that the Tong child died by being eaten by a bird. Maybe? Because that, that, we weren't there. So what we don't right. know is, did a... Did someone did this did this it, um, this child die and mm-hmm. then was predated upon by birds. a a raptor mm-hmm. or did the raptor come along and whoop grab it and have it for lunch? Um, I don't know that we can know that. Although it would seem to indicate, I I, I think I would kind of lean toward the idea that it actually was predated upon by a large raptor simply because of the types of um damage that was seen. Uh, it, you know, is kind of consistent with the way a bird grabs something when it's, you know, predating upon it, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, as we see with, with modern primates. So, oh my gosh. So, yeah, <laughs> like that is that wild. Potentially, some of our, our yeah. ancestors were hunted by birds. And if birds Must are these modern really dinosaurs, I know dinosaurs eagle. as we think about them and humans did not live at the same time. No, but essentially, the descendants of the dinosaurs were perhaps feasting on some of our ancestors, which is like, whoa. That's poetic <laughs> That's really cool. in a way, because they yeah. feasted on, uh, on us, and then we kept going and evolving, and now we and feast on them. Yeah, we do have chicken once in a while. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting back to those gulls, I guess, um, I know like my grandmother, for example, was terrified of, she loved birds. She was a big bird watcher and whatnot, but mm-hmm. she was terrified of them if they started to fly near her. Like yeah. birds flying around her head. And a mm-hmm. lot of people, a lot of people mm-hmm. have this like this fear. And you'll see be somewhere on the beach and birds will fly around people's head. And oh, they're like, yeah. ah, oh, yeah. Like they yeah. think they're about to be attacked. And you're like, that bird doesn't care about you. It's just flying by. Or maybe it wants your hot dog, right? Right. Oh, and it makes you wonder like, maybe yeah, yeah the Hitchcock, <laughs> Hitchcock the birds. It's this, it's, it's this whole like, cultural thing about like how terrifying um birds can be or uh if you want a more recent film birdemic which is oh boy that's an experience we can talk oh, about sometime um, okay oh it's it's look at if oh geez if you're not familiar with birdemic go ahead and look it up sometime it's it's um it's not a great movie uh <laughs> it's, not, it's not a b movie it's like a c or a d movie uh it's, it's really something but um It makes you wonder because there's this fear, is there some sort of like maybe even like a genetic predisposition that goes back 
to a time when we really mm. did need to keep an eye, not just on the ground for things that are going to attack us, but an eye to the sky, hmm. lest a large bird make us pray for, you know, and make us lunch. So hmm. pretty fascinating uh, idea. I just wanted to plant that seed uh, in your head and uh, hopefully, you know, it won't grow into something growing out of your head. I don't know. It's oh. a weird metaphor. Look, here's the deal. My sources this week for this story were uh, <laughs> Nature, uh, the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, and of course, uh, Wikipedia. So oh, thanks yeah. for being along on my little journey of birds of prey eating hominids. Yeah, that's so cool. That's I remember I seeing that Wild. in the news when that came out back in 2006. Yeah, yeah it's like uh, alarming to think I... about. <laughs> I don't, I don't like the idea of having something grab me by the eye sockets and oh. carry me away. Nope, that no. sounds awful. Oh. No, thank you. Not great. No. Um, I can tell you as a little fun bonus that uh, from many years of uh, having like animals out on trail cams to see what predates on them, that the eyeballs are often what's eaten first. Thanks for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you got that to look forward to. All right. We're going to take a break. And uh, Rachel. Great. I don't think you've gone yet. You got I haven't. Oh, yeah, I do. Awesome. See you soon. Hi, fancy folks. Welcome to LuxSci, where we make science fun, approachable, and most of all, fancy. I'm Dr. Lex, former microbiologist, current global health consultant, and enthusiast of all the finer things in life. I'm often joined here by my husband, electrical engineer, inventor, and our audio engineer, Dr. Demos. In this podcast, we take listeners on a journey into the microscopic worlds of luxury items and unravel the fascinating intersection of science and opulence. From how bubbles form in champagne, to the molecular forces that harden clay in a kiln, to the amount of thrust needed to send a rocket to space. No luxurious topic is safe from our insatiable curiosity. We're on a mission to demystify science and show how it drives the world around us. No PhD or lab coat required. So if you've ever wondered how science and luxury seamlessly intertwine, join us as we uncover untold stories, hidden marvels, and the inner workings of scientific discovery and sophistication. Along the way, we'll also chat with amazing scientists and artisans. So subscribe now and let the exploration begin. All right, welcome back, everyone. So I didn't get the memo that we were talking about dinosaurs this week. I must have missed that email. Or text or There's message. no memo. There's no memo. It's There's just, no memo. It's random. It's part of the, part I know, of the beauty. I know. So I'm actually, instead of being on a bird or a dinosaur uh, kick, I'm on a Lepidoptera kick. So last week I talked okay. about okay. Yep. that, uh, the large bloom butterfly, which. Oh, that was so crazy. Is a yeah. parasite on ants. Wild. Go listen if you skip that one, you guys. Oh, it's really you gotta cool. listen. So this week, I want to talk about a different species in the Lepidoptera uh, order, okay? So Great. the species that I'm going to talk about actually ties into a topic that I've covered before on the podcast, the gopher tortoise. And Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was recently. It was pretty recent. 
uh, I discovered this after someone sent me a Tumblr post, which made me go on a deep dive and it's just, just wait. So we've discussed also on the podcast decomposers and how things get broken down some animals and uh mechanisms of decomposition in nature uh i'm thinking like the bearded vultures who actually eat bones and things Mm. like that Mm -hmm. yeah but what happens to leftovers like keratin when it comes to hooves and horns and things like that what what do y'all think happens there um, I, wow, my, my, I guess my first guess would be that they get eaten. Um, I mean, I, I would think by rodents. what? Rodents? Would, would, rodents would my guess, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that them up. reasonable. I uh, know rodents eat, like, deer antlers and stuff. Yeah. Right, for the calcium. But keratin, yeah, for the calcium. Keratin. But the keratin, you're, protein. It's a, mm-hmm. it's protein, right. Pretty so, hard I mean, to digest, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, if you're going to tell me that butterflies are eating it, I, you're going to blow my freaking mind. I guess mind. butterflies, given where this is going. Well, one way that keratin gets taken care of in the natural world is by the ceratophagia moth. A moth. What? Yes. <laughs> I told you, I'm on a kick. Watch, Rachel. Yeah. So there are six... You got to explain this one. <laughs> oh, just wait. So... In the world, primarily in Africa and parts of Asia, there are 16, and one species in North America, there are 16 species total of the ceratophagia moth that the caterpillars feed exclusively on keratin of dead animals. Okay, so it's, it's the, it's the, uh, the larva. No yes. caterpillars, no, not the adults. butterfly that, itself. That yeah. makes that makes a little bit more sense. It's not the moths themselves. Like mm-hmm, it's, well, I mean, it mm-hmm. is, but you know what I mean. Still, I feel a little better. Okay, <laughs> good. Still weird. It's still very wild. Uh, specifically, uh, primarily, they feed on the horns and hooves. There are more species of ceratophagia moths in. By the way, I'm giving myself a pat on the back for this week and last week doing so well on the scientific names. I'm very proud of myself. Yeah, you've been doing great. Golf Woo-hoo. clap. Golf clap. <laughs> uh, so primarily the cy- ceratophagia, of course I say and I mess it up, eat the horns and the hooves of ungulates, primarily in Africa, because there's quite a few ungulates sure. and mm-hmm. hooved creatures that are there. But there is one right. species that occurs in North America. This species okay. is the ceratophagia vincinella. And it is, this is just wild. It doesn't eat the hooves of like deer or anything like that. It only occurs in Florida and Mississippi and it only eats the shell of dead gopher tortoises. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, you you did say you were going to talk about gopher tortoises. I did. (laughs) Oh, I was thinking. I was thinking like, is it gonna be pronghorn and bison mm-hmm. and stuff? No, oh. it's the no, shells of gopher tortoises. Just that is shells are so only specific. Of partly keratin. They're partly bone. Yes, yeah, I know. It's just like the scoots like the on the outside. Covering. Exactly. So they just feed on that. 
So what happened? That's so specific. It's so specific. <laughs> it's so wild. Wow. It's How so would you crazy. Find that? Right? So this is to give you a little idea of what this looks like. This is a tiny, tiny moth. Okay. When I was looking at pictures, like this is we're talking like centimeters. Okay. This is okay. teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. As a caterpillar, they look very similar to like a mealworm. Uh, they're beige, creamish body, and they have like a darker brown head around where like their their mouth is, their mouth parts and things. And then as an adult, it's a really thin moth. The wings close in. They don't f- spread out uh, with a black mm-hmm. body mm-hmm. and a fuzzy cream colored head with like a tiny, I think, black dot. Uh, it's absolutely wild okay cool. now that's what that looks like now this adult moth will fly around until it finds a dead gopher tortoise shell it will mm-hmm. lay a okay. series of eggs on that shell okay okay that makes a little more sense yep right the eggs will emerge as the little tiny caterpillars and they will wrap themselves they will construct a mass of of silk on the underside to create like an anchor space um and into the soil of the shell and as it uh, or into the soil underneath the shell i should say not soil the shell that doesn't make any Mm -hmm. sense (laughs) and what will happen is they will just eat and munch and chew and keep going until there's no kerosene left and then once they are big enough um, and the keratin in their space is gone, they will pupate within that uh, protective layer of silk, emerge, oh, and man. then fly away. Hmm. Wild. It's amazing. I guess once you lay it all out, it doesn't seem that wild. I mean, there's no. lots of it's members just of very not specific. just Lepidoptera, but other orders that find very specific tree species, plant species, um, or, you know, uh, host species to lay their young on. So I guess it's not that wild. It just never occurred to me. Right. Which is really what, like, blew my mind is, like, it didn't occur to me either. But what Mm -hmm. really got me is the paper that I'm going to quote a little bit later. Well, I'll quote it right now, uh, one of my sources it's uh, a caterpillar that eats tortoise shells. It's a little bit of an older paper. Um, it's by M. Durup, N.D. Durup, M. Eisner, and T. Eisner, and it was published in the American Entomologist in 2005. They went through and talked about this uh, caterpillar, not only the caterpillar, but the life cycle, and included, included beautiful photos. It's free to be able to access and read. And it's a really, it's a really short, lovely little read. But like I mentioned, when I talked about gopher tortoises is their populations are in decline. Right. So this moth species is also in decline because of the lack of dead tortoises for them to be able to lay eggs and eat. And really, truly. A lot of us, because it's not a charismatic megafauna, it does not, like a gopher tortoise, for example, or a panda bear, people don't super care. 
So in this paper, I'm actually going to quote this because I'm going to end on this quote. Because while it's not like a super crazy, wild, strange nature thing, it is a little wild that there is this one particular species, not even 16 species of this of moth that eats keratin. Okay. Right. (laughs) But I'm actually going to end with a quote from this paper because they go through and they talk about this species and they have a lot of passion about it. And then they talk about the fact that it is an endangered species. And it, it gives me chills the way that they talk about it. Okay. So, and I quote. Okay. Realizing that a species is imperiled has a broad connotations given that it tells us something about the plight of nature itself. It reminds us that of the need to implement conservation measures and to protect the region of which the species is a part. But aside from the broader picture, species have intrinsic worth that are worth or that are deserving of preservation. Surely an oddity such as C. vincinella cannot simply be allowed to vanish. We should speak up on behalf of this little moth, not only because by doing so we would bolster conservation efforts now underway in Florida, but we would be calling attention to the existence of a species that is so infinitely worth knowing. Excellent. It's a beautiful way uh, to put the concept of conservation efforts into perspective because it's hard to care about so many different things. But if efforts for one species work for multiple species, you shouldn't do it or not care about this little moth because it's just one little species of moth. You should care because what do we do without this little moth? Why, Why does it have to have a worth or connection to humans in order for it to have some worth of being saved you know right this has intrinsic value exactly so it was just a beautiful little paragraph and um learning about this moth was wild in the first place but that gave me chills so that's how i'm going to end this week with that uh, my other sources besides this paper which i'll tell you again uh, we're Wikipedia and the Nature Serve Explorer. Um, the paper again was a caterpillar that eats tortoise shells um, in the cool. American Entomologist in 2005. So I like that straightforward title, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's four tells pages. You what's going on. It tells you exactly what's happening. It's four pages. It's really not that bad of a paper to watch or read through, and it's just a delight. I have to go check it out. Yeah. Uh, so I believe thank you that's for it. Us that story. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So thanks wow, everyone. What a great, uh, group of stories. Oh, it's so yeah. fun. Oh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, go care about something this week. Uh, oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening. Good message. Yeah. We'll see you all next see week. See you next week. See you next Bye. week. Bye bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. 
You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.